NAMIC members can now receive a 15% discount on new customer subscriptions to NASDAQ Board Portal. NASDAQ Board Vantage is a powerful corporate communication platform and online solution that helps companies run their board meetings, organize, share materials with directors, and document board activities in a secure online environment. More than half of Fortune 100 companies trust NASDAQ Board Vantage, a NAMIC national market member, to provide streamlined corporate governance services. To learn what the online portal will allow your company to do, visit www.namic.org slash products slash boardvantage. Welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered, a podcast produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Hello, everyone, and happy holidays. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and in this, the final episode for 2022, we're uncovering inflation. We take a look at the tangible and intangible effects that will continue to be felt as we approach the new year. No doubt one of the biggest stories of this year has been the world's focus on inflation and its impact on everything from consumer purchasing power to higher interest rates and slower economic growth. Throughout 2022 on Insurance Uncovered, we spoke with several industry experts who explained how the effects of inflation influence decision-making in every industry and household. Among the questions we tackled whether this inflationary era will be temporary or long-lasting, and what can be done to minimize the impact on the insurance industry. Aon's Patrick Abbey helped author NAMIC's 2022 Mutual Factor Report, and he shared with podcast listeners some of the key factors weighing on the insurance industry's financial strength. 2022 has brought a couple of really interesting phenomenon. Um, so we've had very early spring weather, an active spring season, particularly for the upper Midwest. So if you're a carrier riding the upper Midwest, you've likely seen a lot of cat activity and you've, you're seeing it earlier in the year than you're used to seeing it. Um, so that was certainly unique. Um, also equity market volatility. So we talked earlier about 2021 finishing very strong company surplus positions ending very, very strong. And then we've seen almost a new peril, this equity market volatility that's impacting companies differently, depending on how they've managed their investment uh, portfolio. And then broadly speaking, inflation, you can't open the newspaper these days without reading about inflation, and that is impacting all areas of the business. So you're seeing uh, challenging auto physical damage results. So this is a line of business that carriers typically use to kind of be the ballast of their portfolio. Um, So that's a challenge. And then you've got the impact that that inflation is having on catastrophe events, reinsurer experience. And, and fundamentally, you know, the reinsurance that a lot of these carriers are needing to purchase. Um, as carriers are, have always been looking for growth or most, most recently been looking for growth, today they don't need to write one new home or one new commercial building and they are effectively growing. And so that's putting new pressures on insurance company operations and reinsurance company operations that we detailed a bit in the report. Certainly voters during November's midterm elections viewed inflation as a key factor. In fact, exit polls found nearly one out of three respondents cited the relentless rise in consumer prices, up more than 13% since January 2021, as the issue that most influenced their vote for Congress. 
To combat inflation, the Federal Reserve has repeatedly hiked rates, 3.75% this year alone, the fastest increase in 40 years and more than the past 15 years combined. Insurance Uncovered spoke with U.S. Representative Andy Barr in August about the Fed's handling of the situation and what he believed would help the economy rebound. Well, first and foremost, uh, politicians in Washington, uh, both in the executive branch and the Congress, um, need to recognize the pain, acknowledge the pain of the American people. Some seem to be putting their heads in the sand. And for some time, I mean, they first called it transitory, then they blamed it on Putin, they blamed it on the pandemic, they blamed it on everything other than their own policies and not recognizing, acknowledging what is the true cause here, I think is a, is a, is a problem. Now, obviously, the pandemic uh, had a role in disrupting uh, supply chains. Obviously, uh, the war in Ukraine has a role to play on global energy markets. But if you cannot acknowledge the massive contribution of errors in policy here at home, both at the Fed and in Congress and the administration, to create excess demand and constrained supply all at once, uh, then you're not going to be able to fix the problem. So um, we are where we are. The Fed needs to continue its aggressive tightening project, in my opinion, that obviously has ramifications for the insurance industry, investment decision making, and the like. It has major uh, implications in terms of recovery of the financial markets. Uh, investors obviously um, uh, don't like to see aggressive tightening because of the disruption that it creates in asset prices. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a lot of Americans, over 50% of Americans, who have no assets. They're not invested in the stock market. And the decline in their purchasing power is a real problem. I think to set the stage for long-term recovery in the equity markets, the financial markets, you need to have clear price signals. And that's why the Fed needs to, 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 be, res to be resilient, to be persistent, uh, and have some fortitude in the face of criticism to get these prices down. Um, but uh, dealing with the demand side of the equation is not enough. Uh, there, needs to be, um, there needs to be a reversal of these fiscal policy errors to fix the supply side. Um, on, on the one hand, Congress um, needs to stop th threatening to raise taxes. We just did. I mean, I voted against it, but the Democrats in a partisan reconciliation bill voted to raise taxes on job producers, energy producers, uh, and people saving for retirement in the middle of a recession. Recession is defined by two consecutive quarters of negative growth, regardless of what the White House says the definition should be. Um, and so that is not a that is not a sound strategy for encouraging business investment and repairing the supply side and dealing with constraints on energy production. And that's the other part of the solution. The other part of the solution is we need to start producing energy again in this country. Stop, stop the overregulation of the energy sector, um, and stop subsidizing speculative, uh, unreliable sources of energy. Um, everybody understands that climate is an issue, uh, but for the life of me, I've never understood why starving. Um, energy companies, innovative entrepreneurial energy companies in the United States, which are the reservoirs of the best scientists in the world on the issue on these issues, why we would deprive them of capital to innovate, that's beyond me. So I think we need more, not less, financing into the into American energy companies, 
uh, ESG is very distortionary from that standpoint. And so I think a reversal of these policies is important. Um, stop the spending and then unleash American energy production and investment in American energy uh, to deal with the supply side. Fortitude on the part of the Fed that uh, the combination of those policies will start bringing prices down. Representative Barr also said environmental, social, and governance principles will be one of the major focuses of the oversight of the Republican majority on the House Financial Services Committee, which oversees the nation's banking, insurance, and real estate sectors. ESG is, of course, a top concern for insurers as well. NAMIC CEO Neil Aldridge spoke with New England Asset Management's Rob Barnum about how ESG could impact the long-term economic growth and resiliency of insurance companies. At the end of the day, insurance companies, you know, they, they want a return on their investment. They want something that's stable, that's going to protect their claims-paying ability and their solvency. That's number one. Uh, but insurers also have an interest in, in certainly having, you know, a more uh, environment, a, a more a, a, an environment from a, from a perspective that reduces rather than increases the risk of loss. Whether you're talking about hurricane likelihood or wildfire likelihood or whatever the case might be, but I think the biggest area of concern is is the, you know, we just don't want to be in a position where someone's trying to lever the insurance industry's investment portfolio to sort of pursue their own hobby horse, right? Their, their own, mm-hmm. what they think the right answer is. And that, that I think is the area where a lot of insurers kind of scratch their heads here. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it will be interesting to see how this begins to define itself over time for certain and, and where it goes from here. So, so what, I mean, as you, I mean, so as you look at, you know, these issues, you're, you deal with your clients, you know, what do you think the kind of longer term picture here is as it relates to, Maybe ESG's effect from an investment perspective on the growth of insurers or their resilience. Where do you land on those questions? Yeah, it's hard for me to say what the actual long-term growth impact of ESG will be. Um, it'll certainly change the growth of some sectors, probably energy in particular. Um, you know, if ESG is also means climate change, obviously the the models they are predicting. Um, outcomes that'll impact like industries like agriculture, fishing, even where people re- will reside. Um, I, I, the one thing that I wonder about uh, that is, you know, in newsworthy now that we have experienced a bit of is this uh, maybe a change over from a pure shareholder capitalism into a more stakeholder capitalism. Um, so I mean, like in the experience that we've had just recently in Russia. Um, so I, I don't know if uh, what has happened in Russia uh, would have exactly. And when I say but what's been happening in Russia, I mean all the um, uh, the various sanctions and the companies walking out three to five years ago. If this ESG or sustainable mindset, this kind of move over to a stakeholder capitalism, hadn't taken place, uh, meaning it seemed pretty swift and dramatic, even more than I was initially expecting. You know, companies have walked away from, like I said, profitable businesses. Would yeah. that have really happened five plus years ago? Um, I don't know. I mean, the circumstances were a little different. Um, and the situation was a little different, but um, just the annexation of Crimea in 2014, you know, the response then, the outcry was, you know, very soft. 
Um, so I, I think we have seen a little change over in some of the mindset and will the growth, will that mean more growth? I don't know. It could be, I don't want to say less growth. I'm not predicting less growth from ESG, but it, it might just change the way that we operate. While investment strategy is one way to manage the dramatic spike in inflation, pricing strategy also should be evaluated as almost every line of insurance is being slammed by rising claims costs and expenses. The insurance industry finds itself in a tangle of soaring automobile and building material costs, labor shortages, and supply chain struggles, not to mention dealing with several outsized and extreme weather events, all while inflation outpaces premium increases. ITR economics' Connor Lokar discussed the steps insurers can take to mitigate some of these challenges. Whether you're a manufacturer or an insurer, you, you have to increase your, your prices. You know, the premiums paid by policyholders are going to have to go up because um, the, just the, the cost of that asset insured, whether it's a car or a home, I mean, the replacement cost has gone up, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 yeah. percent, you know, depending on what it is in the market. So I think the challenge with insurance is that it's kind of in the middle. And I think that there's a just kind of like an intuitive gap on the part of policyholders are saying, well, why are my premiums going up so much? My house hasn't changed. You know, I'm living in the same house and, you know, maybe I have the same car that I had two years ago, but it's, you know, kind of probably a communication, you know, effort, you know, on the part of insurers that, okay, but the replacement cost of that car, home, physical asset, whatever it is, has gone up astronomically. I mean, lumber, materials, labor, you know, just parts and labor on the auto side. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. Not to mention the lead times if you can even get it, but once you do, the cost of replacement uh, is, is up huge. And, and I think you made a comment that, uh, you know, premiums probably lag that. So it, it's probably going to have to continue to rise this year and then maybe even catching up next year as aggregate inflation comes down. Uh, but I, I just I think, you know, myself as a policyholder, I mean, I, if I didn't live in the world I lived in, I could see, you know, that kind of thought gap occurring and, and being a challenge in particular in this in this cycle. So so I think communication along with, you know, because again, folks got to stay profitable and, and be able to exist. So going to have to take price and probably just more care in the communication of that um, yeah. than maybe in just kind of normal years when it's just kind of modestly edging higher. It's going to have to be higher than that this year. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think you're right. And unfortunately, the, the way insurers have to go about getting their rates approved doesn't allow for particularly quick uh, responses to these things. And typically it becomes in increments. And so um, you know, we're sort of anticipating there to be a little pain period here where the uh, cost and, and rate does not match um, for some little period of time here, which is a recipe that's not particularly favorable for insurers uh, to have to live through. Rampant abuse of the tort system through third-party litigation funding is also weighing on insurers' pricing strategies. A new research paper by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform brought to light a growing concern that the large volume of foreign-sourced money being poured into civil litigation against U.S. companies and industries is creating a serious national security risk. Although it's impossible to measure the precise dollar amount invested yearly in U.S. litigation, one recent article estimated this figure to be around $2.5 billion, while another source put it at $5 billion, and a 2020 Swiss Re Institute report estimated that the amount was even higher. Harold Kim, president of the Chamber's Institute for Legal Reform, shared his thoughts on the podcast about what can be done about this new threat. 
Well, you know, I think the the primary antidote to this problem is transparency. You know, bringing more sunlight to what is happening. Now, certainly in the course of litigation, you know, we have advocated for discovery rules changes either before the Federal Rules Advisory Committee to amend Rule 26 to make sure that during the inception of litigation, you're turning over funding agreements. But I will say that there are a handful of federal district courts that are starting to understand the importance of transparency. So judges, federal district court judges, are requiring disclosures in their courtrooms as part of local rules changes. Most recently, we saw that with Judge Connolly in Delaware, uh, the Northern District of California has it for class action lawsuits, uh, the District of New Jersey. But we think having a national rules change on it will certainly for litigants, you know, bring more stability to the litigation process. As for the national security concerns, I mean, there are different avenues for transparency here. You know, one angle is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which has been on the books for a very long time. And those require disclosures. You know, if you are representing a foreign interest, either in the hallways of Congress or, you know, in other capacities, the public ought to know. And so there's there's a similar potential policy corollary here that could be, that could be pursued on that end with a potential amendment to the Foreign Agents Registration Act to make it very clear that litigation funding arrangements have to be disclosed. And, you know, specifically when it comes to the investment activities of sovereign wealth funds. I mean, you go to Burford Capital, they're, uh, they're one of the largest litigation funders in the world. Uh, you go to their website and in their annual reports, they do say that they receive funding from sovereign wealth funds. They don't say from who, but there should be some more detail about that. And I think the federal government should uh, and national security interests should certainly be privy to that information. Meanwhile, insurers are anticipating a rise in lawsuits due to the enormous amount of uninsured loss from Hurricane Ian in September. That's about what happened back in 2005 following Hurricane Katrina when numerous disputes arose over whether wind or water was the primary cause of property damage in determining whether a loss was covered. University of South Carolina professor Dr. Bob Hartwig says the reverberations from Ian will be felt across the industry, potentially prompting legislative regulatory changes in Florida and serving as a springboard for conversations about how to build more resilient communities in coastline states. We spoke with Dr. Hartwig following the storm about how CAT events will affect the insurance industry long term. Right. Well, the good news is that uh, the insurance industry entered 2022 very strong, stable, sound, and secure. Uh, and that's despite very high cat losses uh, about three out of the past five years, uh, the turmoil of the pandemic. And, and, then, um, and that's a good thing because uh, what happened in 2022 is not only Ian, uh, but we've seen a, an, an enormous amount of economic turmoil continue, uh, both through accelerating inflation, uh, wild fluctuations in the investment markets and insurers are among the largest investors in the world. Uh, both bonds and stocks have taken a big hit so far this year, at least in terms of their, their book values. And so we'll actually have to see insurers uh, recognize a lot of unrealized capital gains on their, por uh, sorry, unrealized capital losses on their portfolio in uh, 2022. Uh, does that mean they won't be able to play, uh, pay claims? Uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. The industry maintains a, a huge uh, capital cushion, and that's exactly the way we would, we would want it to be. Um, all of that said, there's an economic reality 
here and that insurers, uh, whether they are uh, stock companies or whether they mutual uh, over the long run, they do need to uh, grow their capital um, to maintain their capital. And uh, that's going to have to be done in part through rates, in part through uh, better underwriting, in part through expense management, and in part, hopefully, uh, if there's a silver lining in the rising interest rates, uh, through rising investment income. So, uh, so, so it is going to be kind of a rough year for insurers. I, I've, uh, I've, for many years, I've, I've predicted uh, where insurers would wind up for the year. Uh, and and certainly Ian uh, means that we're going to have a combined ratio higher than we would hope it would. What's very hard for the end of this year to predict is where we will wind up in terms of, say, net income after taxes. And the reason for that is, is uh, at the end of the year, uh, CEOs are going to sit down with their CFO and decide how much they're, you know, how much they're going to sell. Uh, in terms of investments, uh, maybe in some cases realizing a capital gain and, and how much of a realized loss they're going to have. That's a subjective decision they're going to have to make, and it's one that's very, very hard uh, to predict. But uh, I would expect that uh, we we would see uh, one of the few years in which there's a, a, a net realized loss on our investment position. Uh, and that's only happened, I think, about once since the financial crisis. And that's a wrap for Season 5 of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed this year's podcast, as well as these highlights from recent interviews. And we encourage you to check out the archives to hear the full interviews, along with much more. As always, we are grateful for your support, and thank you for tuning in to NAMIC's podcast for all these years. We'll be back again in 2023 with more insurance news. So until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful holiday season and a safe and happy new year.